charges in a shocking hate crime. It's awful. This family's just out for a walk. A driver suspected of deliberately targeting a Muslim family. A child injured in a vehicle chase and shootout. This guy has a gun in his hand. The investigation into how it started and the dramatic way it ended. Second dose decisions. What the information from the United Kingdom tells us is that it's really, really important for all of us to get our second dose as soon as we become eligible. AstraZeneca recipients booking follow-up shots and discussions about when to reopen the border. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks very much for joining us. A 20-year-old man is facing murder and attempted murder charges after police say he deliberately targeted a Muslim family in a hit and run over the weekend. It happened in London, Ontario. The accused killing four of five members of the family. Global's Catherine McDonald joins us with more on the tragedy. And Catherine, police are investigating this as a hate crime. That's right, police say that this was premeditated and pre-planned. Now, investigators allege that the lone occupant of a pickup truck deliberately drove towards a family of five that was just standing here on the corner waiting to cross the street. And police say they were targeted because they were Muslim. I am very shaken up um, knowing that, you know, there's a kid, um, multiple kids. Um, it's just, it's awful. This family's just out for a walk. Paige Martin was sitting in traffic at a busy intersection in northwest London around 8.40 Sunday night when she saw the flash of a black pickup truck as it drove up onto the sidewalk and struck a family of five standing on the corner. Um, and then it was just chaos and there was people everywhere and running. Um. Five minutes later, police say the lone occupant of the pickup truck, which sped away from the scene, was arrested at the Cherry Hill Mall about a seven-kilometer drive away. Investigators say he was wearing a vest that looked like body armor and say based on information collected since last night, this was no accident, but an alleged hate crime. There is evidence that this was a planned, premeditated act motivated by hate. It is believed that these victims were targeted because they were Muslim. There is no known previous connection between the suspect and the victims. Four members of one family, a 46-year-old man, his 44-year-old wife, the man's 74-year-old mother, and the couple's 15-year-old daughter were all killed. The couple's 9-year-old son is the lone survivor. The child remains in hospital and is expected to survive. The family has asked that names not be released. We understand that this event may cause fear and anxiety in the community, and in particular, the Muslim community, and any community targeted by hate. The accused Nathaniel Veltman made a brief virtual court appearance Monday afternoon charged with four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. The 20-year-old, who has no prior criminal record, will be back in court on Thursday. Federal authorities are also investigating, and more charges could be laid. People are afraid to go out the door now. People are talking about leaving the country. They came to this country instead of the U.S.? My daughter because it's supposed to be more tolerant. I, as of today, I'm thinking reconsider a lot. This man was close friends with the family and says they went for a walk every evening. They immigrated to Canada from Pakistan 14 years ago. Trust me, you can't find a better person than him. His family, his wife, his daughter, his daughter Yumna. They're nice people. 
I, I can't comprehend like why would somebody would be doing this to anyone and especially to a family you know just enjoying their walk obviously an outpouring uh, from the community there Catherine and this is going to cause all kinds of fear in that community what's being done to alleviate those concerns well, the police have set up a support line, and as we've been watching people coming and going, leaving flowers at the memorial behind me and talking to people who say they really are terrified, afraid to let their children go for a walk alone, some of them afraid to wear their traditional clothing when they go for walks. This is not what the London police and the London mayor want to hear. They want people to feel safe in this city, and that's why they are urging people to call that support line. And, of course, anyone who has any information about what happened here last night is being urged to call police or Crime Stoppers. Back to you, Sophie. All right, thanks for that. Catherine McDonald in London, Ontario for us. New Brunswick's Public Prosecution Service says the police officer involved in the death of a Vancouver Island woman will not be criminally charged. Chantal Moore, a 26-year-old Indigenous woman from the Klaokwiat First Nation, was shot and killed by an Edmonston, New Brunswick police officer who was called to do a wellness check on her June 4, 2020. When police arrived, Moore allegedly opened the door to her apartment holding a knife and walked toward the police officer. The officer said he stepped back and asked Moore to drop the knife. When that didn't happen, he fired four times. Prosecutors have determined the officer's actions were justified. Moore's family and their supporters marked the anniversary of her death on Friday. A coroner's inquest will be held in December. BC's independent police watchdog is investigating a chaotic police chase in Merritt that put two people in hospital, including an 11-year-old boy. As Grace Key reports, bullets were flying between police and the suspect vehicle during the chase. Holy f***, this guy has a gun in his hand. All his f***ing rims are off. Cell phone video shows Sunday's dramatic police chase in Merritt that eventually led to an exchange of gunfire. Holy Even more disturbing, the suspect had an 11-year-old boy in the vehicle, believed to be his son. One witness spotted the pickup smoking from a distance. When he got closer, I seen back rims bent in, no tread, uh, just all rim. And as he turned, he had a gun in his hand. The gun was, uh, it looked like an assault rifle. Uh, It looked like one of those... AR-15s you see in the States all the time. Um, It was about, had to be about this big. Yeah, it was big. Shortly before 4 p.m. on Sunday, Merritt RCMP tried to stop a white Ford truck with a flat deck trailer involved in a stolen property file. The vehicle fled. About 5.30, the truck was spotted on Highway 5A without the trailer. Police used a spike belt and shots were exchanged before the truck stopped on Highway 8 near Snake Road. There were exchanges of gunfire uh, between the parties. Um, And in the end, the driver of the vehicle, an adult male in his 40s, was uh, shot by uh, police gunfire, we believe, in the abdomen. The 11-year-old boy was injured, but the Independent Investigations Office, the province's police watchdog, is unclear what caused those injuries. Both are in hospital and expected to survive. One witness says the child was not visible. I just couldn't see the kid because he was turning so quick. There was smoke uh, and there was a gun 
in his hand. The Ford truck matched the description of a vehicle involved in a theft Saturday evening of a shipping container from land owned by the Kanakabar Indian Band in Lytton. It's unclear if the man captured in the surveillance image is the same person from Sunday's incident. The IIO is investigating and they'll be looking at everything from the initial stop to vehicle speeds and gunfire to determine if the actions of police were justified. Grace Key, Global News. Starting today, British Columbians who rolled up their sleeves for AstraZeneca are getting the option to book their second shot of that vaccine. But as Richard Zussman reports, some people are still trying to decide if they should get AZ or wait for a different vaccine. It is the question many of the 280,000 or so British Columbians who received AstraZeneca is dealing with. What should they do about their second dose? So I'm just not clear on, you know, if I do get Pfizer or Moderna, what the potential, um, you know, maybe is there like a long-term side effect? And now we get to this point where they're like, it's up to you. And I was like, I don't, I don't want it to be up to me. I would just love the clarity to come out. I mean, I think it's probably Pfizer, but they don't want to sort of alienate people who did AstraZeneca. So they're saying, oh, do either. I still think I'm going to go with first available, but I wonder if I will feel happier if Pfizer or Moderna is the first available. Starting Monday, second doses of AstraZeneca are starting to be administered. And anyone receiving the shot has a choice. Get Astra again or get an mRNA vaccine, Moderna or Pfizer. Great benefits to either side. At the end of the day, we want everyone to get the second dose faster and, and you know do it sooner rather than later and not delay and be comfortable with that choice. The province is not providing any specific guidance on which one to take, providing information online about studies looking into both scenarios, but speed is one priority. We hope to deliver the vaccine to people as fast as possible and people are hoping to receive it as fast as possible. There are far more doses of Pfizer coming into British Columbia than AstraZeneca, but there are also millions of more people waiting for a Pfizer shot. So the province won't give any specific details if you could get your shot more quickly at a pharmacy or waiting for an mRNA shot at a clinic. With the the largest immunization campaign that we have ever run um, uh, in British Columbia, that kind of precision is unlikely to be available to people. That means for Pfizer or Moderna, older people will go first, so will First Nation British Columbians and those deemed clinically extremely vulnerable. And at a minimum, you must wait eight weeks before your second dose, no matter which vaccine you choose. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, let's take a look at our numbers since last Friday. We have three counting periods, uh, 481 new cases since then. That brings BC's total to 145,530, with just over 2,100 of those cases currently active. Hospital numbers are below 200 for the first time since mid-November, with 63 of those patients in ICU. And while those numbers are all trending in the right direction, Sadly, we lost 12 more people due to complications of the virus. Well, Keith Baldry joins us now with more on today's briefing. And Keith, the border is a hot topic. Washington Mm -hmm. state vaccinations are starting to lag behind a little. How concerned is B.C. about reopening the border? 
Yeah, there are a number of questions at today's briefing about opening the border. I think that's because, you know, we're seeing a phenomenal increase in our vaccination rate here in B.C., dropping case numbers daily, dropping hospitalization case numbers. And again, business groups are increasingly pressuring both the U.S. and Canadian federal governments to open that border soon. But again, Adrian Dix, health minister today, pointed out there's a number of considerations that you have to weigh here before we open that border. But he does say it's inevitable sometime in the coming months. It's our expectation in the coming months that the federal government may take some actions in concert with the U.S. government and with other governments to, uh, to uh, increase access to Canada. I think in the coming months, given what's happening to uh, test positivity in our province, which today was 3.51 uh, percent and what's happening to test positivity in other jurisdictions, that is inevitable. But that will require a whole series of measures to ensure that we stay safe. So it's important to remember this is a very long border and it's uh, interesting and positive BC situation looks. It's not the same for every Canadian province or across the country. Manitoba, Alberta, Ontario continue to have serious situations when it comes to COVID-19. So talks of reopening the border are going to take place sometime this summer, Chris, but don't look for it to open, I think, before the fall or September, mm -hmm. I think at the earliest, because the case numbers are still too high and the vaccination rates, as you noted, are lagging in the United States. They've hit a bit of a wall there. Yeah, and we'll have more coverage of that coming up on the News Hour. Thank you, Keith. Right. Moderna is seeking approval from Health Canada to use its COVID-19 vaccine on adolescents. Trial results show Moderna's vaccine is safe and effective in kids aged 12 to 17 and showed no new safety concerns. Currently, Pfizer is the only vaccine in Canada approved for use on teens. No word yet on when Health Canada could give Moderna the green light to use its shot on this age group. Another reminder today that while we are heading in the right direction, the pandemic is still far from over. Royal Columbian is among the hospitals dealing with the sickest COVID patients for more than a year now. And as Catherine Urquhart reports, staff are still taking life and death measures today. So, she got into the IHD yesterday. Yeah, I think we should go on today. Yeah, I'm glad we haven't really. Yeah, I don't think we need to. Inside the intensive care unit at Royal Columbian Hospital, a team of specialists makes yet another critical decision about a COVID patient. This is where doctors and nurses work day and night to keep some of the sickest people alive. Between Surrey, uh, Abbotsford Regional Hospital and the Columbian, we've taken the, the sick COVID patients. Extensive safety precautions are taken. There are 16 patients here who have COVID or are recovering from COVID. It's not uncommon for staff to change their personal protective equipment 12 times during a shift, sometimes even more often. I spend more time in my N95 than not in it. Most days are extremely draining and sometimes gut-wrenching when the job requires being with a patient as they take their last breaths. It's a very emotional and, and challenging moment for not just the patient or the family, but for us as well, to see the patient um, pass peacefully um, without anyone by the bedside there, with us holding their hand and supporting them. She has a balloon in, so it's a manometer, like a pressure gauge. Mm -hmm. Among those being treated, 44-year-old Jeremy Johnson, a dad of 12 and 16-year-old boys. His wife says Jeremy's health quickly spiraled after getting COVID. I'd love to get back to normal. 100%. I want my life back to normal with my husband. But 
I don't want anyone else to like go through this. The type of care needed can vary greatly depending on how the disease has impacted a patient's body. They gave them four bottles of albumin 25% yesterday night, which helped bring the beagle down. Anxiety levels have diminished somewhat now that staff are vaccinated. I have some hope. Um, it's really positive to see so many people in the community getting vaccinated. But for staff at Royal Columbian and elsewhere, the fight against COVID is far from over. We're still here, we're still working, we're still trying. Um, we still need support of our community. I know one of the, that's one of the things that folks I think have, have um, everybody's gotten tired as well. And we're still here, we're still doing our stuff, we're still trying our best. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Effective today, there are some big changes to one of Metro Vancouver's favorite destinations. The city of White Rock has shut down the westbound lane on part of Marine Drive to give restaurants that have struggled through the pandemic the chance to have more patio space. Marine Drive is now one way eastbound from Maple to Vidal Streets. White Rock Council approved the plan after initially rejecting the idea. But not everyone is happy with the change. Some are worried about increased traffic on side streets and how emergency vehicles will get through on just one lane. People are concerned and we're taking into account those concerns. Uh, people are being responded to. They're being informed of what's going on. We don't want to lose any more businesses. Some of them have been around for a long time. Marine Drive is vital when businesses are open and when people are down there. And we're getting to a point where we may be coming out of this thing, but the businesses are still hurting very much. The city says the closure will be in place until at least at least until the province completely lifts all restrictions on indoor dining. Beware the outgoing call scam. It starts with notice your credit card has been charged. And if you think it's an error, there's a number to call back. But if you do, it triggers a chain of events that could drain your bank account. How it works next on Consumer Matters. A grassroots campaign to express support for survivors of the residential school system. How the Orange Heart Project was born later. And remember scenes like this? Haze blanketing much of the province? A warning from the Okanagan that we could be in for another wild fire season. Right now, though, with many Canadians becoming numb to scam calls, fraudsters are now turning the tables and getting you to call them. Our consumer reporter Andrea joins us with more on the new twist on the old CRA scam and what you should watch out for. And Thanks, Chris. Security experts say they've only started seeing this in the last few weeks and fear that until it becomes as common as the CRA scam, more people will fall for it. Scammers are now using the phone to trick you into visiting malicious websites. Here's how it works. You'll receive a notice saying you've been subscribed to some sort of service and your credit card has been changed, for example, $199. If you believe this is an error, you are asked to call a phone number, often toll-free, and from what appears to be a legitimate organization. If you call, the alleged scammer on the other end will tell you that you need to download a document in order to cancel your subscription. By doing this over the phone, there's no way for your internet provider to filter out spam messages or emails with dangerous attachments. By getting you to call into this call center and tricking you into going to a website controlled by the criminals, they're able to infect your computer and bypass those protections. They install a virus on your computer that allows them to remotely control it or to steal documents from it or to install additional types of 
um, viruses. So uh, in many cases, they, they, they sell victims off to other criminals who then do ransom attacks or maybe do banking fraud or do other things. So it's hard to say what any given victim will experience, but it's always going to be bad. Now, most good quality antivirus solutions will detect and get rid of this malware. But depending on how clever the attackers are, it may be two or three days before you get an alert from your program saying it's been removed. If you believe you may have fallen victim to one of these calls, you should take your PC to a security expert who can scan it and eliminate any traces of the virus. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can email me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. All right. Thanks very much, Anne. Just ahead, a patient in distress disappears from the hospital. For this to happen to him, I'm just asking why. A patient who wandered away in nothing but a towel, where they found him. But first, Indigenous chiefs make a united call to suspend old growth logging. Good evening. Traffic is steady in both directions over here at the Patello Bridge with just some minor pockets of volume southbound down McBride through the Queen's Park stretch. From home to car insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Each year, thousands of kids count on BC Children's Hospital for the... About a dozen activists with the group Extinction Rebellion held a protest outside the Teal Jones Mill in Surrey. The group is protesting the company's current logging operations in the Ferry Creek watershed on southern Vancouver Island. The protesters, who briefly blocked the road, are calling for the logging to be halted immediately. Teal Jones Group holds a valid license to harvest timber in the disputed area, where they are expecting to harvest about $10 million worth of timber. Meanwhile, there has been a major development in the battle over old-growth logging on Vancouver Island, including the Ferry Creek watershed. Three First Nations have issued a declaration calling on the province to bring a temporary halt to the harvesting of ancient timber in the area. Kylie Stanton has the story. Together we are laying the foundation of change. With six signatures, three First Nations take back their power over their traditional territories. On behalf of Pachidat, Huayet, and Dikidat, we declare. We have to look at the needs of our future generations. That has been one of our focuses. This is illegal. You have no jurisdiction on stolen land. It's a major development in the battle that's been brewing in the backwoods here on Vancouver Island. The declaration calls on the provincial government to defer old-growth logging for two years in the Ferry Creek and the Central Walbran, while the nations prepare their plans. So the only road building will be in the second growth areas. There will be absolutely no activity in the old-growth area. In a statement, Teal Jones Group, the company that currently has the license to harvest in the area, said, we will abide by the declaration issued today and look forward to engaging with the Pachidot, Dididot, and Huayat First Nations as they develop integrated resource for a stewardship plan. While protesters say it's a step in the right direction, it makes me happy to hear that. They aren't celebrating just yet. It dances around our concerns. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done. And despite the First Nations asking them to leave the area in peace, it's clear they have no plans on going anywhere anytime soon. We're still not willing to stand down. We are still inviting guests 
of Elder Bill Jones. So we will we will continue our stance. The provincial government, on the other hand, making an historic move, saying it would honour the declaration with plans to enter into discussions with the nations. This is a message about reconciliation. But it's going to take some time to define the exact areas being deferred, what that means in terms of roadways being built, or the logging of second-growth timber, and just how or when the logging companies will be compensated for lost revenues. Those are some of the things that we're working out, and we will continue to move forward, ensuring that we're working with Indigenous nations. What we do know, this may be the latest deferral request. To heal our lands, our waters, and our people. But it most definitely won't be the last. Kylie Stanton, Global News. The family of a Mount Curry man is demanding answers after he was somehow able to wander away from Squamish General Hospital in the middle of the night. As John Hua reports, when searchers found Eagle Leo in a ditch some five hours later, he was disoriented and almost naked. Why did you guys not notice that my son walked out in the towel? The fact her son is now recovering in a hospital bed offers Maureen Andy little comfort. They have search and rescue out, they have dogs out, they have called the police. That's because she says it was Squamish General Hospital that lost Eagle Leo in the first place. There you go. (laughs) The 42-year-old described by loved ones as a devoted and caring family man was found outside almost naked lying on the ground after being reported missing for nearly eight hours. I was really, really upset and I was like thinking about my son lying naked in the ditch with a towel wrapped around him that was wet from the shower. Leo was first admitted to Lionsgate Hospital on June 1st after passing out while working in the sun. He was treated for dangerously low hemoglobin levels then transferred to Squamish General where he was supposed to be picked up by family on Saturday. Instead, his mother got a visit from police. I kept saying, it doesn't sound right. I said, what did he take with him? And he said he didn't take anything with him. Leo has since told his mother he was given medication that left him disoriented. After showering, he tried to find his clothes and somehow wandered out of the hospital in the middle of the night. It was first reported at 3.30 Saturday morning. It was, I think, 7 degrees that night that he was out there in his towel. In a statement, Vancouver Coastal Health writes, we understand any patient's family would be worried in this situation, and we apologize for any distress this situation may have caused. In the rare instance in which an event like this occurs, we conduct a thorough investigation and take remedial steps as appropriate. I'm First Nations. I've heard many stories, and the nor- it has become normalized to expect a lesser standard of care. Leo said he remembers falling twice, injuring both his back and head. He also suffered bruises to his arms and cuts on his feet. He goes, oh, well, I said, no, Eagle, you're important. It's not okay that this happened to you. And And he said a nurse did offer an apology, but that's not enough. It's about restoring faith in a healthcare system that she says right now is hard to trust. Treat our people better. John Hua, Global News. The family of the victims of one of B.C.'s most horrendous mass murders says the killer will be asking for day parole later this year. Back in 1982, David Shearing killed George and Edith Bentley, their daughter, Jackie, and her husband, Bob Johnson. He kidnapped the Johnson's young daughters and sexually assaulted them before killing them as well. The family says Shearing, who now goes by the name David Ennis, 
asked to delay his July parole hearing until September because he's not ready. But they say the parole board has told them he'll be asking for day parole and possibly to be moved to a minimum security prison. The family says they're in shock and are still running an online petition calling for him to be denied parole. Up next, vaccinations slow to a trickle in the U.S. I'm just giving it some time. I'm not in a vulnerable group. The demographic most resistant to getting the shot and why the whole country is still at risk. Also, approval of a new Alzheimer's drug and why it's so controversial. Traffic is moving well in both directions over here at the Massey Tunnel. Keep in mind that there is road work southbound on Highway 99 near Ladner Trunk during the overnight hours. From Home to Car Insurance, BCAA's local experts are here for all your insurance needs. Visit BCAA.com. Interest you in Global One at the Massey Tunnel. The United States has reached another milestone in the race to erase COVID-19. More than 300 million doses of vaccine have been administered. Many are second doses, with about 42% of the population fully vaccinated. But Global's Reggie Cicchini shows us that despite some states achieving high rates of success, others are lagging, and that's prompting fears of a new wave. One would almost never guess that this was the hardest hit country at one point during the pandemic. But even with the growing number of Americans now vaccinated, upwards of 30% of the population is still wavering. I think there is probably between 13 to 15 percent of people that aren't vaccine hesitant, they're just never going to get vaccinated. Public health experts say the balance of the group is convincible, but the White House, aiming for a goal of 70 percent of adults vaccinated in the next month, understands hesitancy increases as age decreases. People who are over 40 have a much higher percentage of vaccination than people under 40. So clearly some of our focus needs to be on people under 40. Six states have vaccinated less than half of the adult population. In four of those states, it could take upwards of 10 months to reach that point. In Alabama and Mississippi, more than a year. I'm just giving it some time. I'm not in a vulnerable group. All right. Doctors say challenges still exist in warming people up to vaccines. Concerns over safety still rate high for those holding back. But misinformation and distrust also carry significant weight. We need to change this if we're going to get ahead of the epidemic. There's also worry that slowing rates of vaccination could allow for variants to gain more control. CDC observed troubling data regarding the hospitalizations of adolescents with COVID-19. A CDC study of teens hospitalized in the first quarter of the year showed 31% wound up in an ICU, 5% on a ventilator. The majority had an underlying condition, and the Alpha variant, first identified in the UK and the most dominant in the US, added to complications, which only concerns doctors more. Microbes, even though they're small, are, are very savvy at twisting themselves out of being caught. What happens if we don't get people vaccinated fast enough? Trust in each other and science could be the keys to a return to normal. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. In health matters tonight, the FDA has approved a controversial drug for Alzheimer's disease. The drug, aducanumab, is the first new treatment for Alzheimer's disease in nearly two decades. It aims to slow the progression of the disease by removing sticky deposits of a protein called amyloid beta from the brains of Alzheimer's patients. The monthly IV is approved for those in the early stages of the disease, but many experts say there's not enough evidence the treatment works, and some doctors are even warning that they'll not prescribe it. 
Still to come, a show of support for survivors of residential schools. When I found out about these orange hearts, I was so amazed. The grassroots movement making connections to help a community heal. Also, it's not even summer yet, and already the Okanagan is drying up. A warning that any spark could set it off. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Well, this spring has so far shaped up to be very dry. In fact, it has been the driest on record in the central Okanagan, and that's fueling the fire danger rating. As Global's Claudia Van Emmerich shows us, fire officials are urging the public to be extra careful and mindful of the fire risk. Dry forest fuels and increasing temperatures, a potentially dangerous combination for forest fires that has Wascalona's fire chief concerned. Look at how, how dry it is. Uh, it wouldn't take much for a fire to get started here. This spring is the driest on record in the central Okanagan. The fire danger rating at the base of Knox Mountain in Kelowna is extreme. No surprise when you consider how dry this spring is so far. What we really need is a couple weeks of dreary, wet weather to hit the reset button on our fire danger. But according to Global Okanagan's meteorologist Peter Quinlan, there is no substantial rain in the forecast in the foreseeable future, with a drier than normal trend expected to continue for a while yet. We've just had tinder dry conditions. Only 13.5 millimeters of rain reported at the Kelowna airport when normally there's about 85. That's just about 16% of normal. The dry conditions keeping wildfire crews busy dealing with fires like this one in West Kelowna at the beginning of the spring season. There have been almost three times more fires so far this year compared to last. We have not received as much precipitation as normal, which means our deeper fuels are drying out earlier than usual. As the temperatures and the dryness increase, so too do measures to reduce the fire risk. Starting Friday, June 11th, Category 2 and 3 fires will be banned in this region. That is any open burning other than a campfire. In West Kelowna, the fire department is ready to be called into action, but it's urging people to do the same. It might mean having a plan in place in case a fire affects your home, a grab-and-go bag that you're ready to go if you have to be evacuated, but it could also be actions you take in advance of a fire, like preparing your home and give firefighters a chance to protect it. Claudia Van Emmerich, Global News. So well, does that mean we should hope for rain? Overnight, overnight. Overnight is yes. better. I spent... I spent some time vacuuming water puddles up off the Little League baseball diamond yesterday, so I know it's been soggy around here. Good to see that sunshine now, though, Christy. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. You know, I was going to mention for the interior regions, June is typically the wettest month, and that's the month that they really need that moisture uh, for, the, for the region. And as I mentioned, they really don't have any significant rain in the forecast for the region. Here's a quick look, though. It's not only in the southern interior that's very dry. Right across southern BC, we are con- uh, dealing with drought conditions, especially across Vancouver Island in the southeastern portion at a level two. So it's many areas across uh, southern BC that are dealing with these conditions. And when we look into the long range, the seasonal forecast for June, July and August, bear in mind this is an average for that time period. We're expecting above normal precipitation. Hopefully that tends to, that uh, transpires uh, because that would certainly help the situation. But right now, when we look at the five-day forecast, nothing significant for the Okanagan Valley and much of southern uh, BC region. Although, as Chris mentioned, we have had some rain, just not a good soaker for a prolonged period. So dry tomorrow 
morning. Tomorrow afternoon, a slight chance of an isolated shower or thunderstorm. You can see how spotty it is across the region. Once again, some isolated areas may get some significant moisture, but not a prolonged rainfall, which is really what's needed. And what June can really give us, uh, as we well know, January, right? So tomorrow is mainly cloudy. Uh, Risk of thunderstorms across Vancouver Island, the Sunshine Coast as well, remaining near seasonal or just slightly below. We are expecting an unsettled week. So one of those weeks where you need to keep your rain jacket or umbrella handy. Here's a look at your central windows weather window. And while you're keeping your uh, rain jacket handy, also keep your eye out for rainbows because this is perfect weather for rainbows. Great shot from Steveston. Thanks very much, Christy. And take a picture, of course, for Mm -hmm. Christy's weather window. All right, Squire Mm -hmm. is here. What do you have for us, Squire? Well, uh, Canada's men's soccer team only needs a draw tomorrow against Suriname to move on to the next round for World Cup qualifying. With the strength we have, we we should come away with a result. And the great thing about this Canadian team that was head coach John Herdman, who used to coach the women's team, is like the women's teams he used to coach, this men's team can score. Pretty exciting. Hearts on display. Coming up, a touching tribute to the lives lost at the Kamloops Residential School. Thousands of kids count on BC Children's Hospital for the expert care they can't get anywhere else. BC Children's Hospital is here for them all, but they need your help too. Rise for BC's Kids, June 12th on Global BC. All right, Squires here with sports, and there is nothing like the intensity of an elimination game in the NHL. And there's nothing, well, I shouldn't say that. It's, it's, it would be like that in any Canadian city. But the city of Montreal knows all about winning in the playoffs. They haven't done it for years, but they have a long history of knowing how to celebrate when the uh, Habs win. And it may be Quebec's team, but the Montreal Canadiens owe a lot to this province. Uh, Captain Shea Weber, Carey Price, both born and raised BC boys. Brendan Gallagher, he's an adopted BCer, was born in Edmonton, but played for the Vancouver Giants, living here in the offseason. They're all playing big roles in getting the Habs on the brink of being in the final four. And there he is, Gary Price right there. Does he have another win in him? Well, Montreal gets off to a good start. Eric Gustafson. That gives Montreal a 1-0 lead. They'd have a 2-0 lead after the first period, and Winnipeg looked like they didn't really have much left. And then an unlikely hero, Logan Stanley, all six foot seven of them. Doesn't score a lot, but he got two in the second period. And they'll go to the third even at two. Islanders Bruins and Tuka Rask. Not having a good game for Boston tonight. There's a... Uh, Another BC boy, Matt Barzell, scoring to make it 1-1. Look at this goal by Brad Marchand. Still playing at a high level. I know a lot of people don't like him, but the guy's got big skill. Ten years ago, he upset a lot of Canuck fans by helping Boston beat Vancouver in seven games. So, 2-2, but as I said, Tuka Rask did not have a good night. I mean, okay. Josh Bailey's left alone right in front. But Rask, I think, faced 16 shots in this game and allowed four goals. They eventually had to pull him 
That's Jordan Everly right there. 5-4, so now the Islanders have a 3-2 lead in the series. Okay, in order for Canada's men's soccer team to make the World Cup of 2022, they must survive three stages. They're in stage one. They will get to stage two if they at least tie Suriname tomorrow. They don't have to win, just have to draw. And that's because, unlike other incarnations of Canada's men's national soccer team, this one actually knows how to score. They have guys who can do it. And it seemed odd because for years and years, Canadian men could score in that smaller hockey net, but had a lot of trouble scoring in the big soccer net. That is until now. Could he make it look any easier? It's 6-0 for Canada. That's exactly the mentality of this group. They've described it as their cup final, and we've got three cup finals coming. And that spirit that is drawn into the preparation for a cup final as well as the precision, the details. Jonathan David! Make it seven! Canada's been literally laying the boots to the competition. 23 goals in three matches. Seven against Aruba, five versus Bermuda, and a net-filling 11 versus the Cayman Islands. Yes, neither of those nations are soccer powers, but Canada's done what it's needed to do in facing the minnows of the soccer world, and that's devour them. You know, the, the gift of the Nations League has given us opportunity to blood players, cap-tie players, you know, get the attacking side of our game solidified. But, you know, then you come up with a, a, a test where, you know, teams are really going to test you, and you haven't been readied for that. You know, the, the teams that haven't had to compete in Nations League have gone off and played international friendlies every window against teams that are better than them. So they've had to overreach. It's a stretch to think 136th world-ranked Suriname can beat 70th-ranked Canada on Tuesday, but they too have been racking up the wins. Suriname scored 15 goals in their three victories, but all Canada needs is a draw to advance to the next round where the competition gets a lot tougher. It goes both ways for this team. We've shown that you know, this team can go in the other direction and win games by their attacking prowess. It's very clear that you have to win games by defending resolutely. And, and I think this team have got a real opportunity through these hopefully three matches to build that sort of quality that's going to be required for our future. It's in! People around soccer always have a lovely vocabulary. They defend resolutely. Okay, Rafael Nadal, Yannick Sinner, uh, fourth round French Open, which of course... Nobody plays in the dirt better than Rafael Nadal. Look at that. Enjoy it. He's not going to be able to play forever. But like Federer and Djokovic, this is a golden era in tennis. Three outstanding geniuses of this game. Example. Straight set win for Nadal. Djokovic also won. They'll meet in the semis if they keep on winning. Which is kind of sad. They won't meet in the finals. But Djokovic and Federer would meet in the semifinals. There you go. Great tennis, all of it. Thanks, Squire. Just ahead, the woman behind all those orange hearts popping up everywhere. A Chilliwack woman's grassroots campaign to pay tribute to the children whose remains were found near a Kamloops residential school is taking off. Her orange heart campaign has struck a chord with a lot of people, and as Imadagahi reports, it's bringing strangers together in new friendships. 
while her young children are napping or at daycare. Eva Goldthorpe is busy making these. Orange Hearts, a tribute to the 215 indigenous children whose remains were found during last month's heartbreaking discovery. Everybody took it really hard. My husband's, um, his grandmother was in a residential school uh, and she's passed now, but I mean, his mom took it very hard. Word spread quickly about Goldthorpe's Orange Hearts, which are now a popular symbol of solidarity in her community. I'm averaging 150, 200 hearts a day. And it's just as soon as I fill it up, it empties. Each day, dozens of people come to her street corner to pick up both cardstock and vinyl cutouts. It's just the, the show of support, and it's been great driving around the neighborhood and seeing the orange hearts everywhere and knowing that this is something that people care about and they want to show their support, because we do have a really big Indigenous community in Chilliwack. And it is through her orange heart project that on this day, Goldthorpe met her neighbor, Emily Henry, a residential school survivor. When I found out about these orange hearts, I was so amazed and, and touched. Since the discovery in Kamloops, Henry says painful memories have returned. So have stories of residential schools that haunt generations of her family. The stories that have come out of that are heartbreaking to, to listen to my elders cry, you know. It's just so sad. She says seeing those honoring survivors with even something as simple as an orange heart warms hers. Well, any grief that's shared, you know, it does help. A reminder that during the most difficult of times, there is a community of allies that surround her. Emadagahi, Global News. Good to see those hearts popping up. For sure. All right, uh, before we go, last word on weather and some of that uh, sunshine behind you, Christy. Thanks, yeah. So we are going to see increasing cloud. Very slight chance of showers tomorrow. Actually, tomorrow should be pretty nice with a mix of sun and cloud, especially towards the end of the day. But certainly this week, we have more showers in the forecast for Wednesday, Thursday, and certainly Friday. Need to get some of that into the Okanagan, mm -hmm. right? Okay, thanks, everybody. Have a great night. Good night, all.